Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm his dragon companion, Duncan Nickel. And we are a book club podcast where every other week we read a fantasy novel and give it a fun review. And this particular episode we are covering Murtag by Christopher Polini, the continuation of the Inheritance Cycle. The fifth book, but not book five, and actually the sixth book published in the series. Oh dear. Duncan, what's your familiarity with the Inheritance Cycle again? Geordie, you know damn well I don't really have any. I, when I was very young, uh, a movie came out called Aragorn, and yes. I watched it, and I thought, that was alright. And then I read the book, and I, I started out, I started reading, I was thinking, oh, this is alright. And then, not, like, early on, I got quite far through it, maybe up to, like, the 88, 90% mark, not, not quite to the end, I went, oh, I've had enough of this. And uh, that's my familiarity. There we go. But the book assured us, I was researching this book, we, we were told this is the perfect jumping on point uh, for new readers who haven't read The Inheritance Cycle, which I have, I've revisited in the past year, and I'm really fascinated to see what uh, what your takeaway from it is, Duncan. Because the thing is, I, I did try to watch uh, the Aragon movie in preparation for this, and I do mean try, because... I, I didn't make it past 20 minutes. It's it's It was just... It was rough. It was rough. The only thing I can really remember of it is that there was a character, like an old cranky man, who was just the most mentor Obi-Wan figure I'd ever seen, who then I remember dying mm-hmm. in a very Obi-Wan way. And, and that was it. That was my main takeaway. I also remember there was like a red sword which I assume having read more talk is Razok. And I remember that, I don't know, there's like a, like a, like a lichy thing. That was about it. Cool. Cool. Lichy guy and a sword. You don't remember the name of despite just reading the book, which we could base it on and Obi-Wan. And that, that's Aragorn. We, we did it. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it is a like several thousand, what, uh, maybe a million words of fantasy novel, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure we've got the bases covered by now. Oh, there's a dragon. Really important detail. Yes. This definitely was a dragon. That's quite important. Voiced by Rachel Weisz. Duncan, have you been enjoying anything else in the weeks leading up to us reading Murtag? Jordi, I have a little bit. Well, I say a little bit because I haven't actually finished it yet, but I do want to give it a shout out now because I just started it. I'm about maybe a third of the way through and I've been having a blast with it. So okay. in the last week, Jordi, it was my birthday. Happy birthday, Duncan. Thank you very much. 28, getting on in years. Uh, before my birthday, my partner, my very lovely partner, she got me a book that I hadn't actually heard of before. And she got it for me because she knew how much I love Legends and Artes. And it said on the back, recommended for fans of Legends and Artes. <laughs> so I was very happy when I got that. It's written by Rose Black and it's called Till Death Do Us Bard. Okay. Never heard of it. And, uh, well, I hadn't heard of it, but I'm going to try and sell it to you because I'm really enjoying it. It takes a bunch of elements that we've maybe kind of seen before and kind of melds it all together. I'll be honest, I do think the Legends and Lattes comparison is a little bit of a side wonk. It's sort of where Legends and Lattes and Kings of the Wild meet. But yeah, the just from the title, I'm getting more of a uh, Bloody Rose uh, feel for it in that it's probably about musicians on the road in a world of adventure, right? Almost, somewhat, but no. It's about okay. these two adventurers 
who meet up. One of them's the bard in question, and they decide they want to retire together. So they settle down, they get married. It's our protagonist and his husband. And they're living their kind of quiet life for, for only about five months. It's a very quick relationship. But then the bard, his beloved, he goes missing. There's some dodgy dealings and they spend a night at an inn and then he disappears in the morning when he wakes up. And thus he is setting off to track him down and find out what's happened. He has a past he didn't know that much about. And what makes this book so great is... I'm sorry, I'm going to give it more plot than I really should have, but I think you need to hear this next bit to really get the sell. He goes to a necromancer to be like, is he dead? Has he, like, passed on? And the necromancer's like, checks. Nope, he's not on the other side. And he's like, great. And they're like, I can ask the dead, like, summon a spirit from the underworld and see if they've heard anything. And he's like, that's a great idea. Go and do that. And so this necromancer hunkers down, draws out a circle, summons forth a ghost from the other side to tell him if he knows if they know anything about his missing husband and the ghost that gets summoned is our main character's ex-wife oh okay and they end up as like this merry band of three the necromancer the ghost of the ex-wife and the protagonist <laughs> desperately looking for his husband on this quest across the realm that sounds it great is brilliant that sounds really good well, I I, I want to hear how whether you still like it when you wrap it up because I'd be interested in uh in hearing more about that. Maybe looking at myself. But Jordy, anything on your side of things? Um, not really. I've done a little bit of of I've been reading Best Served Cold by Joe Abercrombie, which I got for Christmas. But I haven't made that much progress for it. I'm slow going. It's it's a very enjoyable book, but I'm not even at the halfway or the third point. So um, you know, keeping an open mind. But that's all I got to say. Really, I'm much more eager to jump in and start talking about Murtagh. Okay then. So Geordie, you are the super fan. You reread the series recently. I am the yep. fresh faced baby to this. I want to know if we had similar experiences. So... I, I'm really interested because I'm not going to lie, reading this through quite a few times I was like, ooh, Duncan is going to struggle with this. <laughs> and there were a lot of moments. So as a jumping on point, okay, I'm going to tell you now. Thoughts. Geordie, I found Murtagh okay. I sure. really found it a very mid-of-the-pack fantasy book for me. I personally felt that it sort of... Uh, the general plot and moment-to-moment was fun. Uh, there's a, mm-hmm. some nice action scenes. I like the setup. I like some of the ideas being thrown out there. And the central two characters of Murtagh and his dragon companion, Thorn... I, I liked their relationship. I liked when they spoke to each other. That sure, was good. Sure. And I followed the plot. I genuinely knew what was happening. I knew where Murtag was. I knew why mm-hmm. he was travelling to different places. And sure. I genuinely knew what was going on. What I was missing, and I think this is the more important bit, is I felt I was missing a lot of the emotional weight in this story. That I wasn't sitting there scratching my head going, what's going on? I was sat there scratching my head going, why do I care? Why? He'd be like, oh, I don't want um, Narsuendia to see me like this. I'm like, who's that? Why do I, like, oh, she's the queen? Cool. What's your past relationship mm. with her? Oh, and I like, you get drips and drabs. I'm like, but I don't care. Like, when they, these two characters, massive spoilers already, meet at the end of the book, and I'm like, am I meant to feel something? I, I just, I don't know you. 
I don't know you. I don't know what your history is. Like, am I meant to be rooting for you to get together? Or are you friends? Or like, I just, I didn't have that emotional history. There's a really big scene where we visit the dra- the we visit the grave of a dragon that yeah, Murtagh had killed. Would be like, you'd be like, why the fuck are we here? What a waste no, like, of time. Almost well, like he needs to get a scale to catch a fish, and and then like, okay, I I hear you. I get the plot. I don't know why. What? Why would you, as a writer, choose to do this? And there's a lot in this book where this was about 700 pages in, in my copy. I've seen that's mm-hmm. true for pretty much everyone. And I genuinely was just like, oh, if you could make this 350, I think you would drift up from sort of okay to good. And that was that was my experience, Geordie. Please tell me like it was different for you, but. It was different for me for understandable reasons because I had the emotional context for all the different scenes. I think all of your criticisms are pretty fair and we knew right from the start that we, we to pull back the curtain a little bit, when I made Duncan read this book without reading any of the preceding books, I knew that was a bad idea, but it amused me the idea that you could jump on at this point, you know, over a million words into, uh, into the inheritance cycle. That you could just jump in and have the same experience. Absurd. Like a, a ridiculous notion. This is just for people who are really big fans of the Inheritance Cycle. And in terms of in terms of the beat-to-beat moments, like you, Duncan, I was like, yeah, yeah, I like this. Is, right? this, is, this is working for me. But at the end of the day, it's not the best Inheritance Cycle book. It's probably... The weird thing is... The moment-to-moment movement of the book Aragon, the worst book in the Inheritance Cycle series because uh, Christopher Pellini was such a young writer. He had a lot to learn. He had a lot of places to go. The writing's better, but the pacing is much slower and much more turgid. It gets bogged down in a lot of places. In my personal opinion, you really just have to like the way in which Pellini will just go out and tell you stuff you don't need to know. You just have to enjoy that, to to like Inheritance Cycle books. And personally, I do. I like it when an Urgle sits down and is like, I'm just going to tell you a personal story for a chapter. Are you okay with that? And I'm like, yeah, sure thing, man. I'll put up my feet. I'll listen to this story. But if you're not into that, that's a really boring chapter. I'm glad you can see it from my side. Yeah. It's a lot of... What does this serve the plot of this book? And there's that so much that in. just does not need to be here. Like there's like there's a there's a joke made in the author's note at the end that that the author lost a bet with someone and he now owes him a sushi dinner because he said he could keep it under five hundred thousand words. Which is a long book. And I genuinely think it's a shame. Because from a standalone perspective, I think there is a story here. You've got sort of these two opening sort of mini quests. And then we go off to face off the big bad of this book. Yeah. Who isn't the big, big bad. They're sort of the hedge big bad. But they they were a good enough villain that I want to see them stopped. There was enough characters moving around that I wanted to see. There's a character called Aelin. Who's like a professor of the damsel in distress. I want to see her rescued. Mm-hmm. And Murtag. I'll be honest. I thought he was mopey. Yeah. And he is. That's true. Did it far too much. And that's the thing. It's just 
too, too, one too many scenes of him going over the same point sometimes. But when he has his sort of character fulfilling moments where he picks himself up and he renames his sword from, I don't know, I think it was originally like Misery and he renames it Freedom or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, that works. Why have we taken so long to get here? It's And the length is exactly the problem. Like, this took me a really long time to get through. Um, To pull back the cursing yet again... I, I've been reading this book since the start of December, I think. Like, in the background, knowing that I wanted to pick it. I could not have read this in the two weeks we normally appoint to read a book for this podcast. It's just so long. And I read, like, The Poppy War, which I'm pretty sure is a longer book, and which I, which I enjoyed less. But I still got through it faster than this. What I would say to this book... Um, talking about like the pacing and how it sets up the poppy war has this really clear like three acts and we move location it changed the style of the book quite a lot this felt like a short story opening which it is in this town of Kiel. it literally is a short story like, opening it's a short story he's already written from someone else's perspective fantastic it worked i like that so when i read that first opening i went okay I've misjudged you, Christopher. I I should have been with you for longer. And and then what we get is the middle session, the, the first like major act of this book, the entirety of it felt like a massive side quest. It is. We are so linked. True. It's a bunch of fetch we, quests. It's a bunch of fetch quests. We rock up in a town. It's that bit at the start of the... Say you're playing Legend of Zelda. You've just left the forest. You've arrived at Hyrule Town. And it goes... Uh, okay, Link, before you can meet the princess and progress the plot, we need you to go and uh, do the fishing minigame over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to go and... Oh, there's some dodgy dealings down there with this rough guard. Can you go and deal with that? Oh, can you go and get that magic item and give it to them? Oh, you can't do the fishing minigame until you find the golden scale to put on the end exactly. of your special rod. And it's like, oh my gosh. And all these elements, by the way, do not play massively into it later. No, it's so the true. Big it's fish, not like which we any part so long of it about. is essential. It's not like the fight with the fish teaches him something he needs to know later. Um, or like it's part of his character growth, which informs his actions later. It's literally just an obstacle he has to get past. And those parts are the worst parts of the book by by far. There are enjoyable moments in them. Like, I think the beat-to-beat action of actually, like, fighting this big monster fish was actually surprisingly entertaining, considering how much I was dreading it when I was like, it's a fishing game? We're fishing? We're fishing in this? This is ridiculous. And it's the same with that scene I mentioned earlier when he goes to see the, the dragon burial. And this bloke walks up and delivers genuinely what I found quite a, a heartfelt monologue Absolutely. about, you know, his son died at war. He doesn't have a grave. So I come here to the sort of, uh, you know, the monument to like the fallen so- or the unknown, uh, unnamed soldier just to pray somewhere. And I'm like, oh, that's really good. That's a really nice insight. Why is it buried in so much? You could genuinely, Geordie, and tell me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think you do. This whole section of the book, which is a good, I'd say, third plus, yep. 40%. This whole section could be condensed down to a single chapter. Well, you could have that opening short story. Maybe a handful oh, of chapters. Maybe. Maybe two. Because he gets a talisman in the opening story, which leads him on to where we spend the latter half of the novel with this cult up in the north. Mm-hmm. I'll get to a point on that later. You could have him in maybe two to three chapters... Visit the town, the werecat, 
I do like the werecats. I'm not going to lie. Good. Actually, they were yeah. pretty neat as a magical species. Uh, could just basically have told him or just asked him to go and get the scale. That could have been the, the request. Then you've gone, got the scale, had that scene, had the werecat goes, here's the story, and then we move on. So, on one hand, I see what you're saying. You do, there is, it's, it's one of those things where where you start taking blocks out of the Jenga tower, it does start to get wobbly because the whole point is to unveil that there's a big conspiracy going on behind the scenes and a bit where Murtagh like, has to infiltrate the guards to steal something. I think that section's better. It's, it's, it's still a bit too long, but it is better. The problem is, is that, like in a video game with those fetch quests, it's stacked. To, to join the guards... He has to kill the fish. And to kill the fish, he has to bring it a scale of a dragon. But not Thorn's scale for some reason. It has to be Glader's scale. And I I genuinely, Duncan, do you remember why? Because I don't remember why Thorn's scale wouldn't do. I'm pretty honest. I can't even remember why the scale of the dragon is actually needed. Because the fish was just attacking people anyway. He could just use himself as bait. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a bit too unreliable for it to just be himself, because it could attack anyone, and it particularly liked the shiny scale. The shiny scale? So what, a shiny coin? Uh, I, <laughs> or even something that just looked like a dragon scale. Anyway, it, it is magic, but, but I don't... But, like, it was a fish created at a time when there weren't even that many dragons in the world. Why are we killing a fish? And, yeah, so, and he has to, uh, anyway, we are sort of beating a dead fish at this point. To be honest, my favourite part of that whole section is the part where they reveal that the bottom of the lake is covered in dead bodies from Galbatorix's army, because what I liked about that is, you know, it's 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 a sudden visceral reminder of Murtagh's like history in the past of all these people he's let down so it's a good set piece a good place for him to be threatened with this existent with this terrible threat of this monster he has to fight it's a good visual but as someone who maybe didn't know the army yeah that he let down and basically have just walked around going what the army of the evil king yeah you tend to kill them that's what the fantasy genre tends to do is kill the evil army i know it's meant to humanize it but because i wasn't there yes you were like, there. so don't okay. get, the problem is that you don't know how tragic galbatorx's army is because you know how in this book you make like you can make magical oaths which you can never break yes so basically everyone in that evil army is forced to make a magical oath they can never break to serve evil king so whenever you kill someone in like in galbatorx's army on one hand you had no choice because they were never going to surrender because they had this this curse placed on them, basically. But also, that was just a good person who literally had no free will. So it's in some ways a really tragic act. Well, yes. And that sounds really interesting. And it makes it sound like the series where that's all involved as part of the plot would be more fun to read. Duncan, I have a question. sounds like a more cooler villain. So Duncan, anything I, we see in this book. So, yeah, go on. so Duncan, I have a question for you, <laughs> and that is um my some of my favorite parts of this, and the points in reading Murtag where I really pricked up my ears, and I was having a really good time, was any time people were fighting with magic. I think that if Christopher Pellini had stumbled into something really successful, is that he created a magical system which it's fun to see people fight with. Do you agree? Oh, definitely. For someone who's come off a lot of Brandon Sanderson and very familiar with his repertoire of different magic systems, 
to have something that I really think stands toe to toe with a lot of stuff that he's written, in fact, better than some of it, was amazing. The general effect of magic being precise and like word commands well that's nothing new i you know you say fire in an ancient tongue a bit of like apache rufus's which actually came out later series it's all about knowing the right magic words sure. the true name of things and all and of that even comes them. back to a wizard of earth of course you're absolutely right knowing the true name what i really liked here is the mental battles that he describes mm-hmm. between wizards this is brilliant nothing physically is happening but it's all about penetrating their mind and trying to keep yourself distracted or like closed is it you can even be closed off and basically like chant a mantra Mm -hmm. so there's nothing in your mind they can really get at or to be sort of slippery and like i don't know (laughs) mentally darting about Mm -hmm. so they can't pin you down it's some really cool descriptions the problem the one even uh, if the rules were a bit fluffy to me so uh, what i mm, okay what do you think was fluffy well I never really understood when uh, magic required words and when magic was just a, like this mental thing sure. that they did. Like, there's certainly a lot of um, telepathy that seems to go on and yeah. a lot of just sensing. And I'm like, is, just, is that something when you like just touch magic you sort of can do? And there's a lot of talk later on about like the source of magic and like, because Murtagh, it, it, it seems to be that he gets weaker when he casts spells. Of it's course. like drawing on himself. Yep. But I'm like, so is all magic something that he has? In, is it like a? Is it like a power? Is it like a mana bar? And like the stronger wizard you are, the bigger your bar. Or is it sort of like this thing you draw upon? So there are bits where you can't access magic, and I was like, I don't. Get what's what, what do you think the answer to that is? Well, I want to say it's more like a mana bar that, like, that you cast a strong spell and then you feel physically weaker, and then the more stronger a magician you are the the bigger the mana bar you have that's basically that, but, that's basically it yeah it's like you have a mana bar because you have a reservoirs of of strength of energy and then eventually if you tax it enough it eats into basically your stamina bar like you it take it becomes physically taxing to use magic and there's ways to draw magic out of things and share it and store it and siphon it but fundamentally yeah you you have a battery and you're going to run out of batteries eventually. The thing that I really loved about this magic system, actually, the bit that I found even more enjoyable than the like telepathic attacks was the idea of wards, of casting these protective spells and then being like highly specific to a certain intent. This is amazing. You're so right, man. I love that shit. The best bit is that wasn't that wasn't in book one. Like, he hadn't even come up with that idea in book one. It wasn't until, like, halfway through book two that he was like, hang on a second, this is a great idea. And the idea of him being really specific and precise and nuanced and that if you place your wards wrong, they can actually kill you, it's so good. So to give an idea of this, there's the scene, going back to the grave scene with this dragon, and he wants to get out of scale. And he's like, I can't just scale come to me magic the ward will be protecting of that so what do i do how do i get around these wards that protect the desecration of this grave and he comes up with the idea of like well there isn't going to be a ward saying don't bring water up through the ground who would think to like stop that and so that's what he does he like finds a, a deep water source and slowly uses that to move one of the scales up through the earth brilliant yeah and there's so many scenes like that that require you to be clever. And in fact, 
the funnily enough, the way in which Murtagh develops as a protagonist for the story is in deepening his understanding of magic. He starts off the story being surprisingly rudimentary, so much so that it's almost a plot hole, because he casts a lot of spells in the inheritance cycle, and then to be like, yeah, I learned most of those in like my three weeks hiking with Aragorn, I didn't quite buy that. Even Aragorn didn't know that many magic words at that point in the series. Calpatorix had to teach you some. I mean, that's something that's really interesting reading this book and not being that familiar with the inheritance cycle. Aragorn has such a distant and almost mythical status. Like, I, everything yeah, that Murtagh... I get it, we're only seeing it from Murtagh's perspective here. But he is like Aragorn. Aragorn. Like, I'm going to get that wrong a few times. Aragorn. Everything is always like, he was just the... He was the paladin of all humanity. He is the noblest, the kindest the most understanding, the most powerful, the best fighter. And there was an moment of like, wow, maybe I should be following his story. <laughs> I think you're being a teeny bit, teeny bit uh, uh, overbearing of that one. Because basically, whenever everyone is brought up, it's only brought up in like the most resentful manner possible. Like, oh, he was so lucky. He got everything good. I, I got... Everything was bad for me. I got the worst sword. I got the worst teacher. I got a lesser dragon that's scared of tight spaces. Exactly. And still, it was still nice though. Even though I didn't know where that character was going, I still like could piece it together. See, okay, now we're talking about, you mentioned earlier that Murtagh, his characterization, his growth is tied to his learning of magic. Geordie. Yeah, I actually didn't finish my thought on that. But well, keep going. I'm actually going to ask you. Jordi, so how did you feel Murtagh developed naturally out of the previous series into this book? Because I'm meeting him afresh here. Does, is this yeah. still like the, a natural extension of where Murtagh was going? How much Murtagh were you actually exposed to in the previous series? Was he a quite distant character or did you ever get POV from him or how did that work? You never get Murtagh's perspective. Ever. You do get a lot of interactions with him, like a lot of interactions, uh, because he's an, he's a supporting character in the first book. He's like a, you know, he's a helper. He shows up partway through and he joins Aragorn's crew. And then the second book, it appears like he's dead, but he comes back at the end with the big, no Aragorn, I am your brother twist. So you don't see much of him, but he's very important. But then he shows up a lot in the subsequent two books. They have a lot of fights. They have a lot of scenes of conversation. And most importantly, Nasuada is a perspective character from the second book on. So when she's captured by Galbatorix and she meets Murtagh, you have a lot of conversations which, you know, in which you see him in his most vulnerable state, having previously been obviously very hurt and full of pain and anger. You see him at his absolute lowest when he's like, you know, being compelled to do things he doesn't want to do. Okay, and from Nesuada's perspective then, is Murtag, I assume, quite a pitiful character? This is someone that you he encourages the reader to like take pity and understand that he's not out evil. Oh yeah. Actually, more so from Aragorn's perspective, even though Murtagh is trying to kill him a lot, he's the one who empathizes with him the most. It's very much a sort of, you know, I could have easily been him sort of scenario. Uh, But the funny thing is, so when I read Inheritance, the fourth book in the Inheritance Cycle as a kid, and 
Murtagh and Nasawada's relationship suddenly became like romantic. I was really surprised. I felt like it came out of left field. And I felt that way for many years until I reread the Aragon series this year. And I was like, oh no, this has been like, I just missed this as a kid. In every single book, it's clear that Nasawada had immediately had a crush on Murtagh when they met. They liked each other immediately, immediately got separated, and then she spends every book having at least one or two chapters where she's going, man, if only Murtagh were a good guy. Okay, so that is uh, a mutual feelings. Because just from this book, that wasn't clear. It almost read more like Murtagh was pining after this woman who really actually wanted very little to do with him. <laughs> she has good reason to not want anything to do with him. But Nasawanda is literally, like, the toughest person in the world. She undergoes so much more bullshit than, like, Aragorn ever has to go through. So, talking about going through bullshit then, we learn a lot of bullshit that Murtagh has had to go through in this book. We get quite a lot of scenes flashing back Mm -hmm. to his childhood, to his father. Yeah. Uh, Which is stuff which he talks about in previous books, but which we've never seen from his perspective before. That's not... Okay, so this isn't new information. Reveals, like, his dad whacking him with the sword because he was crying or something. No. Yeah, that's all in book one. Uh, I don't know, somewhere that's a bit disappointing. I was like, ah, yes, I am reading the secret knowledge of Murtagh. I now have one up on all of the Inheritance fans. Was there any secret knowledge? Was there anything in this book, Geordie, that you're like, that was new? We did not know this... Yes. Everything involving Thorn. Thorn, I think, gets two lines in the entire inheritance cycle. Okay, interesting. Right at the very end. Because, so obviously, because of the way telepathic communication works, you understand, Duncan, that like reaching out telepathically is actually quite dangerous. When you reach out, you open yourself up to uh, attack. Absolutely. If you're in a fight, That's why I never do it. you kind of want to be bottled in. You know, your your guard up. Which means that Aragorn and Sephira never get a chance to talk to Thorn because whenever they meet up, they're fighting. So you never get to see things until the very end when things are they're at peace. And finally, Thorn can be like, hey, I'm not actually that bad. I'm just big and scary. Right. Okay, I've got two kind of follow-ups then. Number one, is the tele- telepathic link between Dragon and Ryder... Is that separate to all other types of telepathic link? Basically, no, but fundamentally, yes. So, (laughs) it's the exact same as any other telepath communication between anyone, but it's way more intimate. You know, it's a genuine merger of feelings and heart and all that. At a certain point in the series... Aragorn and Sephira literally have conversations with people where they, like, say stuff at the exact same time and it flicks back and forth between their dialogue in the middle of a sentence because of how close they are and it, like, annoys people and they have to tell them to stop. But they are so, like, close spiritually that if Thorn were to die, Murtag would probably go insane and maybe just die automatically and if Murtag died, Thorn would almost certainly immediately expire. Okay, that's intense. Uh, that actually does relate to something that was brought up in this book about Golbator... Galbit... The Old King. Yeah. <laughs> Golbatorix. Uh, that is a name. I'm just going to say this now. I Really, if there was a name that like a kid makes up, 
everything else i'm pretty chill with but that's the one thing i'm like that is such a mouthful that it's is fine. a kids 101 it's evil fine. king name everything else is absolutely fine murtag love it aragon absolutely we all love lord of the rings change one letter now what i then also want to dive into so thorn up until this book was just the evil dragon that murtag appeared riding on the the red to sapphire is blue that's right and that was sort of just just kind of have that kind of good good guys bad guys divide so we didn't know anything about his birth about his claustrophobia his time in the dungeon claustrophobia is completely new um that was never brought up before but it's always been understood that like thorn is not inherently bad and is forced to be bad and that he was like he and murtag both have been tortured and compelled into doing this stuff so it's more specific in this book but it's always been stuff we've kind of been aware of okay so theora frequently thinks of thorn as a pitiful thing as opposed to something to be scared of she also does not respect him she doesn't hate him but she's like he is pathetic mean Thorns go some hard stuff in this. And, okay, so that was that's part of the story that I actually really like. I think I've been a little bit negative so far. I really like their relationship. I did like how close they are. That When you say that, you know, they couldn't go without each other, you mm. really see that, particularly in the sense where Murtag is having this real downer moment, when he's like, I don't know why I'm here, why me, why should I get a chance at anything? And this is a lovely scene where Thorns like, hey, I chose you. I yeah. hatched for you. You know, you are the one human that I wanted to be with. And we've gone through some shit together, but we went mm-hmm. through it together. And that was actually one of those moments. I talk about not having that emotional connection. I had an emotional connection there. Like, Murtag and Thorn, right there, even just from this book. Yeah, the bond between boy and dragon has always been one of the strongest parts of all of these books. And it continues in this one. But Geordie, yes. stuff actually happens in this book. I think we actually... Uh, we haven't said the she name talk about yet. it. Bashel. Bashel. Bashel is the evil witch who is pulling some of the strings, but probably having some strings pulled on her as well, that Murtag mm. kind of faces down in this story. And I was very excited when she was formally introduced, because I kind of went, at last, we're getting to the point. Sure, of course. We travel to a new location... Nargogoth? Sure. No, is it Nargothron? I don't remember. I, I, To be honest, a lot of the names, the new names, the stuff I haven't been reading since I was 13 years old, I was like, oh man, this is actually pretty intense. I'm getting hit with a lot here. It it definitely had that kind of more Tolkien twinge to the naming scheme. Oh, Geordie, actually, I need to bring this up now. Because I, I did mention this to you offhandedly before while we were reading this book. Oh, yes. But we've you got did. to address this. Geordie. This book, Murtag, lot of locations and a lot of names. Oh, God, well, that's so hard in a fantasy series, particularly when you're new to. Uh, but don't worry, Duncan. All the Inheritance Cycle books have a map in the front, so you can just refer to that. This map in the front of this book, instead of having the names of places, has the names, but in Christopher's special magic rune language. Yeah. Why? It's... It Why would you do that? It is the actual map which Murtag buys in the start of this book. In an early chapter, he purchases a map 
which is slightly different to all of the previous maps you've read in the series, because this one is for traders, and therefore is more emphasized on, like, the location of, like, trading hubs, as opposed to how far stuff actually is from one another. That's a cute idea. Why would I want that and not an actual map? Include both. That's, it's, it is genuinely... The Hobbit had two maps. Bizarre. You have the map of the journey they go on, and you have Thorin's map in universe. Yep. Why is, just um, have that one map? It's that's, it's pretty, it's despicable, to be honest. Like, that's, it's hubris. It's beyond hubris to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. There is a map. You can't read it. Because the funny thing is, is that this is him being like, this is not for people who who haven't read this book before. Because what you're supposed to do is look at that and go, huh, isn't that neat? It's like the map from within the story. Ah, oh, well, I'll just get my copy of Aragon down and I'll read that one instead. But you don't have a copy of Aragon because you were told you could read this one. I'm going to admit, Geordie, hand in the air. I didn't bother looking at a map. I decided I didn't care. I went the Glenn Cook approach in his... Uh, Black Company book series. He doesn't have maps in there. He doesn't think they're important. And you know what? Quite right. It wasn't. I agree. We went. We go to three locations. How far apart are they? Uh, you need to ride a dragon between them. Okay, cool. Yep. The dragon, like his thing, the dragon makes all distance irrelevant anyway. And the thing is, I know for a, in my if, as a fact, Christopher Poloni is the sort of nerd who will minutely calculate how long it's going to take a dragon to go somewhere as opposed to going there on foot as opposed to going there on horseback as and spare mind of a prevailing winds is that going to come in obviously he's paying attention to all that stuff because i've read the inheritance cycle and it's clear that he's thinking about this stuff which i don't care about but i appreciate that he's doing it for me but you're right it's a dragon fly away and i think this could really work if it was done maybe in a slightly different context. One way I imagine this could be really cool, going back to that video game analogy, have you ever played, like, oh, Dragon Quest is what's popping into my brain right now. Love the Dragon Quest series. And, and actually, no, Final, Fan- Final Fantasy, it's the same kind of idea. You start the game, and you're on foot. And it takes forever to get between town to town. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to hop one town to the next town. Each town has its own little problem and you progress through the plot. And eventually you'll get a horse or you'll get a boat. And then near the end of the game, you'll get a dragon or an mm-hmm. airship. Yeah. Or in one, you get a giant flying whale. And then all of a sudden, everything's really close. You can just shoot over the land that you've spent ages fighting your way through. It has a great exhilarating feeling. Mm-hmm. Th- that's what I sort of think would matter here. If there was any bit in this book where we had to walk between locations and got a sense of scale, but because everything's going to fly away, and even if Christopher Fellini is calculating out the time for the flight, well, unless you tell me in metric, please, how fast a dragon flies, doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. Does anything happen? On, actually, even more than that, unless there's a stop or a plot-relevant incident on the trip, they could walk it, they could cycle it, they could hike it. It doesn't matter. You should just have a paragraph going, and we travelled for many days until we got to the next plot-relevant thing. Actually, I've always felt that Christopher Pellini was very good about writing travel because he doesn't get too bogged down in stuff and distractions, but he is quite good at being like, we walked this today, and the weather was like this, and it was very exciting. And then that evening we sat down, and I talked to Brom, and he taught me this important stuff. Have a scene of dialogue, learn a bit of history. Next day, different location, different story to learn. 
stuff like that. So I think he's always been pretty good at writing that, especially given how young he was when he wrote the first book, where the most travelling happens. Again, would have been a lot better if I just had a map I could read. But sure. back to the plot. We travel to Nargothoth in the north. Nargothroth, maybe. And there are lots of interesting things that are thrown up here, Geordie, and I've got to start asking you questions, because, again, plot, the general plot, I knew. We're going to the north to meet a witch lady. But can I yeah, ask you... a witch, she runs a cult, they worship something. What's an Uruk? Is it an Urukai? Because it sounds a lot like one. Uh, an Urgul? Urgul. Wow, I even yeah. messed that up. So, Urgul's the one we meet. are... Yeah, Uvik. Yeah. They are um, the equivalent of orcs. That's very deliberate in the story. They are in the first book. They are the servants of the bad guys. They're monstrous. They love to fight. They have grey skin. They have horns. They're very scary and strong. And you know, it's so. Um, this is part of what got Aragorn labelled as you know unoriginal. Blah 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 blah. Everything, every subsequent book on from the first one, the Urgles are one of my favorite parts every time because in the second book, they join the good guys. They're like, hey, listen, um, we were sort of tricked, magically compelled to fight for the bad guys in the last book, and we want our revenge. We want to join you, the you know, the re- rebellion, and we're going to kick Galbatorx's butt. And then there's tons of scenes where Aragorn will just sit down across a campfire from an Urgle, and he'll learn about Urgle folklore and histories and stuff. And I find it really interesting. I love that. I did like how it was laid in. I, I said, uh, I made the reference to Orcs and Urukai in Lord mm. of the Rings. But actually, something I always loved in Lord of the Rings is the few chapters, I think there's some in the Two Towers with Pippin and Merry, and some with yep. Frodo and Sam and Turn the King, where we get an insight mm. to Orc culture. And how it's like, they're not just these blind, loyal machines. I love there's a scene in Return of the King where they're chatting and you just hear them go, should we just grab some lads and just make off? Like, do we really care about this war? Come on, let's just grab some supplies and we'll just head out south, have our own bit of fun. And I like those blips of, like, deeper culture. And I did enjoy it here with the character of Uvek, who's an Urgle that we meet. I, I do feel a little bit that we have, it's this just... A little bit too much distance between Murtag's like flashbacks to like when I was a child, I was scarred by these monsters attacking me. To meeting mm. Uvek, who's just immediately like, "Hey, I'm a chill dude. I'm like the shaman guy." I'm like, "Are you special, or is this meant to be that a lot of you are like this?" And Murtag and just has again, these prejudices. The problem of the problem of not reading the other books because you go through this same journey as Murtag in the previous books where initially you don't trust the Urgles and maybe you're even a little bit scared of them and you see a lot of characters being close-minded about fighting alongside Urgles on the side of good and then you grow to respect and like the Urgles and so when you see Uvek you're ready to make that jump and no, 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 no. Murtag had a limited perspective before a lot of bad experience of the Urgles. He hasn't realised that they're people yet. But you're already there, realising they're people and realising they have a culture. Ah, uh, okay. That does make a lot more sense. Because for me, it did seem like a little bit too quick. And it always seemed clumsy. It, it always seemed like this. Exactly. Oh, not all it, it would seem too quick. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks. I didn't know that. Yeah, and the thing is that... The great thing about the books is that they never shy away from the fact that Urgles are basically kind of inherently violent. They love fighting. 
ritual combat and, and raids are a part of their culture, but they're also, you know, they're sensitive. And, you know, they, they have a humanity of their own. It's like, you can't actually have a culture that is only war-driven. Like, they need to, at some point, settle down and raise young Urgles. Otherwise, you just die out in a generation exactly. or two. There, there are, um, you know, amongst Star Trek fans, there are those who like Klingon episodes and those who do not like Klingon episodes. And I am in the first camp. I love a Klingon episode. <laughs> okay. Oh, in the same way that they're just a warrior culture. Exactly. Wolf has such a hard upbringing. But, but Murtag gets introduced to this cult, and this part of the book becomes this lengthy period of don't tick off the cult too much diplomacy. It reminds me of a lot of Dungeons and Dragons adventures where you immediately run into the bad guys, and you know you don't like the bad guys, but you have to play along and just... You just let them do their evil thing for a while whilst you scope them out to try and figure out how dangerous they are. This is one of the parts of the book that, again, just goes on for too long. Absolutely. It is just the length. It's not the idea, and it's not necessarily the moment-to-moment execution. It's just the length. Exactly. There's a scene where he first meets them, and he's like, okay, I'm going to scout them out. And then there's a scene where he goes back to his lodgings, and then he goes and does a little night reconnaissance, then he goes back to his lodgings, and then Then he gets invited on a hunt, then he goes back to his lodgings, then he goes to a party, then he goes... Exactly. After after the the night reconnoiter, after he's done that, that's the moment that it all should go wrong. The next day, this literally happens. It literally happens in the story. He confronts her... And then she gets kind of mad at him, and then he cools her down, and then they go on a boar hunt, and as you said, then there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. But there's nothing really we learn beyond that point that he shouldn't have just figured out already. Like, the boar hunt and everything that follows, the only thing that, um, the only thing that changes is his relationship with, what's her name, Algis? Elgis? Alan. Alan, yeah, that's it, Alan. His relationship with her is the only thing that needs a little bit more time to percolate. But even then, that could have been a lot shorter. Uh, it's it just... I got kind of irritated with Bichelle as a villain. Because so much of the time, she's, she's keeping cards close to her chest. Which makes it feel really repetitive. When he's like, okay, so who do you worship? Why are you guys so obsessed with dreams? And she's like, oh, I can't tell you. Okay, great. So why are we having this conversation for the fourth time? And it just felt too much to me like it was the author going, I'm not going to tell you yet, rather than a character who had a legitimate reason. She wants to win Murtagh to her side. And it's sort of implied that she's like hoping that he'll just have the right dream Mm -hmm. and swap sides. But I'm not going to lie. I think that's just stupid of her. I think everything she should know of Murtagh up to this point is that he's not going to do that. He's not going to have a dream of war and horror and suddenly go, I'm down for some of that. I mean, depending on your perspective of Murtag, in living in the world of Allegasia, if you were like, this guy was corrupted to the side of evil once, I bet I could do it again. I just think she does a very poor job of trying to subtly get him over. Because Murtag never feels tempted. I think that's my perspective. No, absolutely not. And why reading- would he be? They're weirdos. They're a bunch of fucking weirdos. And they don't realise how fucking weird they are. What do you think of the character of Bichelle herself? I think Bichelle is serviceable. That's the word. She is clearly, from my perspective, 
the henchman. She is the smaller villain that you have. Uh, this this generally didn't feel like a complete story, by the way. I don't know if that's clear. Murtagh is, uh, doesn't work as a unit. It must have continuation. Otherwise, this will be deep. This will drop down the gauge if this doesn't have a proper continuation. Because she is just the, I serve a darker power. What? Oh, you'll find out later. I'll, I'll, I'll read that book when it comes out. I probably won't. Sorry, Geordie. The parts when Murtag finally gets captured and then he's like subjected to torture and drugs and that and they finally break him uh, and get him to serve them, it'll, that's the part of the book where more than ever it just puts on the brakes. And it's partly because, you know, it's depressing, like it's a sad part of the book, but it goes on for such a long time that, that I just, it really put a damper on how much I could enjoy the book. Again, it's goes back to the scene where... So this this is the part of the book where we meet Uvek, the Urgul, for the first time. And he gets dragged to the same cell. Why put them in the same they're cell? They're not in the same cell. In one cell. Anyway. Oh, they're not. Oh, they're opposite each yeah. other. Having conversations. Yeah. And you're like, okay, cool. They're going to chat. And guess what? Aelin is going to help him break yes. out. You know that immediately. Yeah. Yet it takes like three four scenes oh, it's so much more than that. actually to do it like she shows up the first she doesn't show up originally then he has to ask someone can she bring me my food then he has to convince her like twice to put the right stuff in his food and you're just like oh for flip's sake guys i've already been here for 500 pages it's, i know where this is it's going so true in fact the, the, i was so convinced that it was going to happen that the first time she comes and she brings him food before he even asked i assumed that she'd already taken the drug that was poisoning him out and that he would start to recover without realizing that he was recovering but no, no, it just had to keep going. And I'm, we're beating a dead Urgle here by, you know, by going over this so much. But um, it really is such a... Fu- Christopher goes over it a exactly. lot. Like, and that's the problem. It's a, he does... The guy he mentioned in the author's notes, who he owes a so- sushi dinner to because the book is too long, he should get that guy two sushi dinners. Like, come on. You could... I know that every other time... You've written a book, it's been incredibly long, and you luxuriate in how long the books are, and normally I love it, but this time it's not like that. You've got to tighten this up. You know, he said he was supposed to write in the style of Edgar Rice Burroughs. That was his first intention, and he did not follow through on that. Geordie, and that, I think, is why it upsets me so much. We have read sort of overly long books on this podcast. Poppy War and Warbreaker, we both enjoy, to a certain extent, yeah well lesser extents yep. but yeah but they were long books this the problem with this book is not so much is the length but it's also the fact that i love that pitch and i think this book could have worked so well if he'd stuck to that pitch i have read um Egeborah's tarzan the first like six in the series and massive trigger warning there is a lot of very difficult content there particularly around racism mm. but alongside that is some really intense and jam-packed action and adventure plots and Murtagh as a protagonist I think I would really have enjoyed if he'd been given a more tightly put together plot like I think that would have been the better book and it's sort of in here somewhere and particularly as a jumping on point it's often you see in fantasy series not all the time but often the first book tends to be a bit shorter Yep. Tends to be because the editor's got a bit more power. Yes. Maybe it's they haven't got, you know, the same 
all their ideas out, they're not sure what they want to explore. Perfect sense a bit shorter. I think his Murtag was meant to be this jump on point to get people hyped and excited for this series, the new series about to come out, presumably. It would have done so much better with a smaller book. More people would probably be willing to jump on and give it a go. Yeah, because... And then go into the epic fantasy exactly. series. Exactly. It's a transitionary book. It, the point is that it would be weird to start the next series, book five and on of the Inheritance Cycle, and just have stuff have happened off the page, which kind of needed to be covered, like the cult, and you can be introduced to that in this book, so you don't have to go over it again in the next one. But it doesn't need to be this long. And the problem is, the problem is, is that when Murtag finally gets over the magical drug that's stopping him accessing his magic, the exact moment, the exact moment he's able to suck up spare energy from this diamond he's had on him throughout a good portion of the book, and he's able to get his powers back, and he's able to break free, I'm having an amazing time, like, like a snap of my finger. I'm, 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 I'm having a whale of a time again. She's been waiting for it for so long. When he finally kicks out and the action throws down, it's a really cool scene. And this is what I can't get over is the fact that when it's doing its thing, when it's doing it well and getting to the bloody point, it's fun. It's such a thrill. There are still moments in that action scene, I will say that, where it does go, I still feel even the action scene, I'm like, come on, Chris, just ease off a bit. There's a bit where he goes down into the cave to face the, the villain, yep. Bechelle, and he like... He gets ambushed by some monks from the evil cult mm-hmm. and he fights them off. He gets ambushed by some weird rat monsters. And he fights them off. And a little later, he gets ambushed by like giant spiders. I know, like, it's Jesus Christ, you had one idea. Just you pick one. one. Oh, it's such the problem a... <laughs> is, the problem is I know what's happening. I know exactly what's happening, which is that he's writing it out. He's going through a scene and he just has this idea of what if he was attacked by a giant spider. And then he's like, hang on. What if this giant spider had, like, metallic limbs and, like, he couldn't sense his thoughts? What if there's a race of super-intelligent spiders all throughout the hidden parts of Allegacy, which no one's ever discovered before? And I'm like, oh, Christopher, I fucking love it. Oh, no! Why do I have to love everything you write? Ah! But that is so Egaburras, you know? What if we just go in this cave system and find this magical monster? But you know what? That on its own, in complete isolation is your 30-page story. That's it. Like, cut that out, and it works. But as just something side-by-side in this longer, fetch quest, bit-by-bit book, it almost diminishes... It's like the... What was I about to say? What's the phrase? No, uh, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. This This is the opposite. I think the sum of the parts, in a weird way, is sort of greater than the whole we get. Each of these little bits really do work but when you stack them on top of each other and on top of each other on top of each other it sort of kind of collapses down under its own weight it's like making a cake you know you can have three tiers mm-hmm. you've got your butter icing it's fine but you just keep adding tiers eventually they're just going to seep down your butter icing is just going to ooze out the side and that's just a bit of a mess an indulgent mess but still a bit of a mess and that that is how i felt by the end of this book so at the end of his book, he has his big confrontation with Bichelle, and I think the fight slaps. Uh, I think it's really awesome. 
it does it delivers on the setup throughout this book which is that magic isn't about direct conflict it's about finding the clever way around around the walls around the spells and this is what murtag has to do in this fight he has to think he's under pressure he's going back and forth and he's trying to find the clever route out i love it i don't even want to spoil for people who are going to read this book what the clever way out is but it was so satisfying to me it felt like the natural combination of murtag learning his lessons throughout this book Dordie, though, I need to ask, because that's a great scene. We had the great moments, but then we do get left on a a bit of a cliffhanger. There were some questions left unanswered. There's some green mist and some holes at the centre of the earth. As someone who's read the entirety of the Inheritance Cycle, you you know what's going on, No, I don't. This is the big mystery. It's it's the setup, I think, for the next part of the series, which is, what the fuck is the Dreamer Below? What is Aslagur? Because Murtag doesn't even believe that this thing which the cultists worship. And by the way, they use the word cultist in this book way too much. Like, you gotta, you gotta change it up sometimes, man. You can't just keep using the word cultist. Anyway. Um, fe- so, no, on that though, it felt like someone had like gotten that like Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Exactly. And it's like, no, 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 they're cultists. That's their stat block. These are cultists. He's facing down cultists. Exactly. I'm like, okay. They're not people, they're not the misled, they're not just some guys who got involved, they're not the guards, mm-hmm. they're all just cultists. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah, like so that. So, back to you. But, but, like, the thing, this dark, mysterious thing that lies deep beneath the earth and might be connected to dragons and might not be, what is it? And the fact is, we don't know. Murtag doesn't believe it's real, but it is definitively real. It's down there, it's waiting, it's gonna wake up at some point, and then it might bring doom to the world. Hooray! And presumably that's going to be the focus for the sequel series that's coming. Exactly. The next five, so six So that's books. why this book had to exist. It had to be the bridging point between so that when we picked up the official book five, you can't be like, hang on, there was another species of super beings that just no one ever talked about? That's, that's impossible. This book exists, so we don't think that. I am a little scared, Geordie, and I'm really scared that Christopher is going to betray me. Because he has said, you can just read Murtag. It works. You can just start here. Okay, fair enough. Wish it was more standalone, but fair enough. What would really hurt, though, if he then writes the actual fifth book and then goes, oh, don't worry, guys, if you skip Murtag, you you can come right on here as well. (laughs) That would hurt. (laughs) That would be extremely funny. You're right. You probably would. And I wouldn't put past him doing it. Here's the thing. Like, I I think I had more of a good time with Murtag than I had a bad time. I don't regret the time I spent reading it. I don't think this book's going to do that well. I mean, I couldn't really comment on that. I know that Inheritance does have quite a following, particularly of like, although I didn't read it, of my sort of generation, it was big. You know, a lot of people love these books. A film got made for a reason. I almost feel like, particularly now that the Percy Jackson TV series is coming out on Disney Plus, that maybe an Inheritance revisit, this could all be very good timing. Get Murtag out, test the waters, and then get a TV show going. Uh, Duncan, they are making an Aragon TV show. I did not genuinely didn't know that. And now a new book series is coming out to align with it. I'm pretty sure it's coming out on Disney+. Well, Plus. I'll be watching that. And I think this is just very good timing. I'm personally much more excited 
for an Aragon TV show than I am for a Percy Jackson TV show because, like, Percy Jackson, it had a couple of adaptations already, including a musical. Uh, it's time for Aragon to get a little more love. You I'm know? on the other boat. I'm very happy to get another Percy Jackson adaptation because, in my humble opinion, based basically only on reading Aragon over 15 years ago and reading, and reading Murtag now, Percy Jackson's just a better series. Short, to the point, know what it's about. Duncan, before we wrap things up, I think I would like to give you that quiz. How much have you learned about Aragorn and the world of Alagacia from reading Murtagh? You're a clever boy, I'm sure you figured some stuff out. I mean, out. there's definitely some holes in my knowledge, just from this book. There was a line reference to a bloke called Durza that just didn't get expanded on. And there's a lot of talk about how Galvatorix travelled north and lost a dragon and went mad. I'm like, is this already known? What happened? I, I, I'm still not clear on what the like the, the actual history of Galvatorix is and the, the dark rain and all of that stuff, but... Don't worry, that's one of our questions. Brilliant. All right, hit me, Geordie. What you got? Hello, distinguished guests, and welcome to the very first episode of our game show, Shirtagal Sweep. That's a great joke if you've ever read Aragon. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey, and with us today we have our intrepid guest, Duncan Nickel. Duncan, how are you feeling today? Very, very nervous. I don't think I'm going to do well in this. Have a little faith. Now, your chosen topic for today is... The Inheritance Cycle by Christopher Pellini. Is this an area that you have a lot of expertise in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I read, a, like, a full, like, 700 pages of this stuff. Well, that seems pretty impressive and good enough for me. Now then, my the first question is... What is Murtagh and Aragorn's relationship? They are half-brothers on through their dad... You, that is incorrect. You provided too much information. They Damn are half-brothers through their mother. That makes more sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> Second question. Why is Murtagh so feared by the general population? Because he committed several acts of genocide. I mean, that seems a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, you, uh, the answer was he worked for the bad guy. And while working for him, he killed a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Including a guy who was just a, he was a nice guy. It's sad to see him go. Third question. How, Duncan, do you cast a spell? You say the magic words. Is there an alternative way to cast a spell? You think really, really hard. Yes. We haven't really brought it up in the episode so far, but, you know, there is a good... Michelle only uses non-verbal magic because she doesn't know how to use magic, which is much riskier. Anyway, whatever. It's not, it's not the point. Question number four, Duncan. I should keep track of how many you've gotten right. Uh, I think that's technically one. I'll give you two because you were right. They are half-brothers, and that was the answer I was looking for. Question four. Who is Durza? D- uh, Durza is an individual that Murtag met earlier on in his life and who Murtag's believes must have come from the north i don't think durza did come from the north i'm pretty sure he comes from the desert and that is not the answer we're looking for durza is a shade a mortal man in 
who's been possessed by corrupted spirits and who served Galbatorix as his right-hand man until he was killed by Aragorn, giving him the name Aragorn Shadeslayer. Not in this book. Not in this book at all. Right, yeah, next one. Question number five. What is Arya's job? Right. So there's a two-part uh, to this one. The first one is, who the fuck is Arya? Okay, so Arya, I had a genuine confusion because I vaguely remember in watching the first Aragorn movie that there was this, this woman who steals the egg at the start and seems a little elf-like but not elf-like. And I could never work out if that was, reading this book, if that was Nasuede or Arya. Um, I'm going to say Arya is a fellow uh, rebellion leader. Is that your final answer? Yes. You're close, Duncan. You're very close. That was Arya's former job. She was a part of a rebellion. However, she's moved on to other things because there is no longer rebellion on. The answer we're looking for is that she is queen of the elves. So she is an elf. She is an elf. Is she Aragorn's um, love interest? She is, but they, but they, but it's tragic because they can never be together. Why not? Uh, so in, so in the pre, in the first book, Aragorn gets a prophecy from a weird cat saying that one day you will leave Alagacia and you will never return. And that's, in my opinion him being quite inspired by like the end of Frodo and he wants Aragorn to be so changed by his experience that he has to leave and and leave behind a world he knows uh, and ultimately I get the feeling just the feeling I don't think this has ever been confirmed by the author himself I feel like he really regrets locking that in with a prophecy as opposed to just a random observation because it's also repeated multiple times throughout the book um, that Aragorn will leave Alagacia and never return. And at the end of the last book, he does indeed leave Alagacia, which is a continent. I did call it a world a couple of times, but it's not. It's a continent. He leaves to to reform the Dragon Riders somewhere else. And because of that, he and Arya can never be together because she's just become Queen of the Elves and she has responsibilities. So even though they're both immortal beings, um, they will spend forever apart. Why doesn't he just, you know, return on his off Prophecy, days, long distance I, relationships? He's, I listen, man. I think he will return. I think that prophecy is getting fucking destroyed. I mean, for one thing, he could probably just use magic to change his name, and then the prophecy wouldn't apply to him anymore. But hey ho, question number six. No, also uh, other. Sorry, also other kind of main factor there. Um, technically, we're all destined to leave and never return. It's called death. Like he's, he's so many... not destined to die. He's immortal. Is that a, dr- a a him thing or a dragon rider thing? That's a dragon rider thing. Murtag's immortal too. That was not made clear in this book. No, it's never mentioned in the book. That anyway. Oh, right, yeah, go on. Not like physically immortal. Like he'll never age. It makes me think, though, that all the other dragon riders must have been like... Can they all get killed by the weak, like the young kid? I don't understand. Right, on, moving on. Yeah, it, to be honest, that doesn't make too much sense. But, um... Number six. Who is Theonan? Sorry? Theonan. F-I-E-R-N-A-N. He's mentioned several times. Theonan. And he's not the Theonan. king of Rohan. Um, he is an elf. 
ruler knight. To be honest, that's pretty close. He is an elf ruler to a certain extent, but that's not the answer we're looking for. Theonin is a dragon. He is Arya's dragon. <sighs> He's the last dragon to be hatched in the in the, uh, the end of the fourth book. Okay, so Arya's also an immortal because she's a dragon rider. No, she's an immortal because she's an elf, and then she became a dragon rider. And are you always destined to be a dragon rider, or do you have to meet her dragon egg to get in with a chance? Uh, the dragon egg has to give you the thumbs up and then hatch for you. A dragon is, like, conscious from the moment it's conceived, but it's protected inside an indestructible dragon egg, very aware of what's going on around it and able to sense people's emotions and stuff. So Sathira, Fawn, and Fionnin were all captured by Galbatorix for, like, a century or... Well, maybe not a century, but a long time. And they refused to hatch for him or anyone he sent there because they were like, oh no, I don't trust these people. Their vibes are off. Okay. But once they hatch, they're then like, I bestow upon you immortal life. Yep. Okay. And the ability to do magic and stuff like that. Cool. Um, what is... So this is question number seven. What is a, a douft dirt? I'm not doing well in this quiz. A douft dirt is a is a one of them does appear in this story good for them um they are a bird person they are not a bird person there are bird people in the story they don't feature in this one they are called the razak they're kind of birdy they have beaks eventually they get wings no a a dalfdurt is i'll try pronouncing it a different way in case because I've pronounced it correctly, but maybe you pronounce it in your head differently. A Douth Dart. No, still lost. It is the magical dragon-killing spear, one of which is wielded by Bashel. Okay, fair. And these are like a limited magical so, item? Uh, no, it, it is an eternal magical item, but most of them are lost and very scary. And normal weapons can't kill a dragon? They can. Dragons are just really tough. They have, like, really hard scales, and they're very big creatures, and they breathe fire. But this is a magically warded spear, which has, like, special charms on it to specifically pierce through dragon hide. Don't worry. I've played D&D. I know when a, a weapon is of giant slaying. Yeah, it's, it's a dragon lance. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dragon lance. Fair enough. Okay. Number eight. What is the Varden? The Varden. Yes. The Varden. The Varden are the they're talked about in re- relation to the rebellion. They're a group that did rebel. Yeah. Um I want to say they're some sort of are they like the dwarves of this world? Is that your final answer? Yes. They are not the dwarves uh. of this world. The dwarves of this world are dwarves uh the varden <laughs> is the name of the rebellion okay that's fine cool i should just get my mouth you shut. were so close it's like there's definitely something they talk about the varden and the rebellion so often what what is the link are they another faction in it okay the varden is the rebellion yes oh, flip okay Num- number nine we got three questions left but you can get this one what do gems do in Allegasia? They store magical energy. Yay! Yeah, but gems act like batteries. Okay, got that one. Good job. 
what is an Eldunari? <laughs> they get brought up all the time, Duncan. An Eldunari? Is it like a wizard? I'll give you another. I'll give you another try because wizards in this book are just called mages. Is it? I. Oh, Geordie, I can't take this anymore. You recognise that they, that it's a word you saw on the page, though, right? Maybe. Okay. So an Eldunari is a magical gem which dragons keep in their chests and which grows with them as they grow and contains a part of their consciousness and a great portion of magical power, which they can then willfully separate from themselves to give to a trusted person like their rider as an extra source of magic. However, the consequence of using this is that when they, the dragon dies, their consciousness and their ego lives on within their Eldunari, still acting as a source of their magical power, and they live on eternally, however, without, like, legs or arms or anything, because they're just a big orb. Bloomin' hell. That... Was that read up? Yeah. that brought up? Uh, yeah, it gets brought up multiple times. Okay. So, um, specifically, the place where it's most important is the, is the character of Glader, the golden dragon who Murtag helped kill in a previous book. He is currently an Eldunari, and he was given to... Aragon to like continue to be his mentor after the dragon died. So currently, despite the fact that Gl- that Glader is dead, he's still around, just hanging out with Aragon. All right. Final question. Let's finish this. Final question. Please place the following events in order: Galbatorix comes to power. Nasuada comes to power. The dragon riders are formed. Dragons and elves go to war. Aragorn finds Sathira's egg. Okay. So we've got five things there. Now we know the first thing is that dragons and elves go to war. That predates everything. Okay. Then the dragon riders are formed. Then Galbatorix comes to power because he's a dragon rider. So the elves are fighting dragons. Then the dragon riders are formed to sort of help deal and control with the dragon issue. Then Galbatorix comes to power because he's a young dragon rider that somehow manages to trump all the other dragon riders somehow. I'm still not blooming clear. Um, and everyone. And then then Aragorn um, finds his egg and, and joins the rebellion. And then finally Nasuada comes to power at the end to be the good queen. Very good, Duncan. You yes. did it. That's completely right. I'm going to give you five points for that. Which means, out of 11 questions, you got eight points. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It means so much to me. That That is clearly uh, a first by any measure. Oh, Geordie. There's... Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our first and final episode of Shirtigal Sweep. The game show where anyone can become the chosen one. There's a lot of fantasy terminology, and this book does not give the time. There is a nice glossary at the back, which was helpful mm. when did I you, got there. Did you make use of that? Nope. I read it at the end. Know like, oh, that's what's going on. It it was... Oh, God, Geordie, I want to give my final thoughts on this book, and I think I made it clear at the very start and throughout. This was not a bad book, and I'm sure if you're coming at this as a fan of the Inheritance Cycle just to have a bit more and to dive back into this world will delight people. 
and I hope that you enjoyed it. But this book kind of pained me on sort of two notes. Number one, I was told this would be a great starting point and not to worry. Don't do that. I don't. I can't recommend this experience to someone else. I, I feel myself being yeah. kind of short. And that's not Christopher this. Polini's fault. That's his publisher's fault. They, they, it was irresponsible and dishonest of them to say that. And the second thing is, I'm a bit sad because I feel like this book could have been a jump on point. In fact, this could have been a book that I personally would have enjoyed a lot more. Mostly just with a tougher editor. And, and get those scissors out and cut down on the content. Make this half the length, honestly, half the length. And this would be a really nice standalone, almost sword and sorcery style story. In the author's notes, you know, he th- one of the people he thanks is his editor. Or no, sorry, I think it's his agent. And agents do play an important role in editing, in editing books. Um... They, you know, his the people who are helping him make his book are his agent, who's been working with him for twenty years. So that's a very uh, deep relationship. Uh, it's his mum, and it's his assistants, along with like a professional editor. Well, those are probably even if they're saying you're very quite shrewd when it comes to editing, they are not going to be a vicious taskmaster. Granted, he's sold millions of books. He's a successful writer. He can he's allowed to throw his weight around at this point in his career especially considering how much he's improved as a writer. But, um, yeah, yeah. I do have two more notes I want to read out. Um, I just glanced at my notes and I realized I didn't bring these up. So this is another, uh, <laughs> this add this to the, par- the hubris pile. Um, if there is one thing, so I said that Christopher Polini has improved a lot as a writer. There is one thing that for some reason he still hasn't gotten over, and it is bizarre, out-of-pocket pop culture references. In Eldest, he once used the line, when they were going to take barges instead of ships, Barges? We don't need no stinking barges. And I literally had to put away the book for a couple of hours. In this... Murtag says that he's going that in a fight he ends someone rightly. Duncan, this is a YouTube meme. This is a fucking Scalagrim reference. This is like uh, this is this is why is this in a serious fantasy book? You shouldn't be referencing fucking YouTubers YouTuber memes in your in your fantasy book. Don't do that. Don't. I, I even get hung up sometimes. When people use like incorrect metaphors or similes, like if you're in a fantasy book, no one should think that something sounds like a thundering train. You've even even lived. So just as an example, like I mm-hmm. I get that in this particular book. I'll be honest, already. Like I'm, that was a pet peeve for you. I think this book was just too far down in my estimations for that to be a problem. Oof, that's, those are harsh words from you. However, however. This last note I'd like to read out kind of goes to show why I will never be able to quit Christopher Paulini. Are you ready for this? Let's hear it. The penultimate chapter of his book is called Islinger. Now, this is a chapter in which he uses a magical spell to basically create a bunch of light, and it kind of like ignites a huge portion of gas, and it makes a big explosion. So, symbolically, this chapter is about Murtag creating light in the darkness to win the day. The word Islinger in the ancient language is a great deep cut because it means light bringer. So Murtag in this chapter is a light bringer. But 
It goes so much deeper than that because it's also the name of a sword in uh, in the series. It's a sword that was wielded by the leader of the Dragon Riders, Vrail, and by the very first Dragon Rider, the first Aragon, the guy who Aragon is named for. A sword which was then later corrupted and named Vranger by Galbatorix. So he corrupted this blade. And so in this way, Murtag is Vranger becoming Islinger. He's becoming pure again. He's becoming un uncorrupted. So not only is he literally a lightbringer, but the light is being shown on him by him becoming this like the sword of past ages and once again if you haven't read the inheritance cycle all you get in that scene is he cast the make light spell and he made light i think that really cannot encapsulate it well enough the publishers were kind of being a bit dishonest when on that one website i read it said that this is a perfect jumping on point for new readers when in fact it is not a perfect jumping on point if you want to read the book series, and I do recommend them, you should read Aragon and then read Eldest in the understanding that Aragon is like enjoyable, but not an amazing book. And Eldest is pretty good. And I really do want to reiterate, this is not a terrible book. This does not stand anywhere near the bottom of the pile, particularly our books that we read all over 2023. You know, this isn't terrible. This probably, I would be shocked if this came out as my worst book of the year. Because it's not. It is a good book. It is decent. The Christopher Pellini clearly is a competent writer. But coming from it mm. fresh like this, I just felt like I wasn't getting the full experience. Plus it was a bit overlong. And it just ended up in yeah. that... I don't like to do numbers, but it's, you know, 5 out of 10. Middle of the pack kind of story. I, I it's, it's certainly more good than bad. So if... I don't score things either, but I would give it like a six. I'd give it like a, this book is more good than bad. Come at it with patience. Take your time reading it. Already be a big fan of the Inheritance Cycle and hey presto. So mate, next time. Next time. Duncan, it's your time to, to choose. And I have been thinking, Geordie, and I have been stewing. And I know that in our last episode and for our new year, we spoke about how this year we wanted new. We want new, new. New authors, yes, new books. Exactly. We want to be finding out things that we haven't experienced. We want to be ticking off the big names in the fantasy genre if we were going to go old. We didn't want to retread books we've already mm-hmm, read. Mm-hmm. What's the point in that? And I felt that, Geordie. I felt that all the way up until maybe the fourth episode of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. And then and then that went away. Oh, no. Because <laughs> uh, I've been loving the series, Geordie, and I need to dive back in. I need to see if the book's as good as I remember it being. So sorry, new new is so gonna wait. Once again, no, this is on both of us. It's two in a row that we have failed to read a book that neither of us have any experience with before. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. You kind of, it kind of looks bad on me, though, Duncan, since this is my objective for the year. I mean, you can only be held accountable for half a year. Let, let's be fair to you, but Jordy, you read this book before. I certainly have. I read this book probably 10 times when I was a kid. It was my absolute favorite book series going up. It is a substantial reason why we are standing next to our microphones today doing this show. I myself have only read it once and I'm really excited to go back round to it. 
this is going to be a good time. I can't wait to do it with you, Geordie. But before we sign off... I can't believe I'm going to have to buy this book again. Like, I gave all of my Percy Jackson books to a charity bookshop years ago, and now I have to buy it again. No, same. I'm in the exact same boat. (laughs) I have, like, I gave them all away. I'm not going to be able to get it from the library. The TV show just came out. There's no way I'm going to be able to book it out. I literally had to Google, and I was like, okay, the closest library that still has a copy is, like, an hour and a half's drive away. It's like, is it worth it? A three-hour round trip for one book? Probably not. I'll probably just buy on Kindle for like four quid. But that's all from us for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give us the thumbs up, the five stars, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you want to hear more about content that we've got coming out, pop over to Instagram. It is just fantasy podcasts. And we've got fresh content, extra things, reviews of books I'm reading outside the podcast appear there, as well as updates for when every new episode comes out. Very nice, Duncan. Well, I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your host, Duncan Nickel. Bye. So long. So long.